This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, Dragon Riders and Wolf Speakers, the animal soul bond in speculative fiction. I feel like you just went one of my favourite animals ever in the entire world <laughs> with this. And uh <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> I mean, I, it, it will come as no surprise that actually the the source of this episode is Jules's addiction to reading. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but within this inevitable activity, I noticed a resurgence in quite a well-loved trope. Yes. Um, it's the magical bond between human or human-like characters and an animal. Yeah. Now, obviously, we've done an episode on animal companions in the past, so be sure to check that out. Uh, but this week, we're looking at a particular slant on the subject. Yes. Um... This is not merely a case of an animal being a bit too knowing or a character having a talent for speaking to animals. It's also not the same as an animal acting as a magical guide or host uh, of the challenge, which you find a lot in folklore and, and, and obviously in, in middle grade fiction as well. This is, this is actually something a little bit different. Yeah, we're looking at a specific, often magical and involuntary bond, one which has several interesting incarnations. So let's get into it. Yes. Okay, so let's start with the soul mate principle. <laughs> Yeah, before we move into the main meal of this topic, we need to look at the probable origins. Yeah. Um, the soulmate trope is a well-worn one which has manifested in a variety of forms from very early mythology to modern romanticy. Yeah, and, you know, soulmates is something that I think we've touched on before, particularly when we were talking about sort of paranormal romance and things like that. Yeah. Um, so in, in science fiction fantasy terms, we have talked about it before. Uh, the principle is simple enough. There exists a twin soul who will naturally understand, um, love and complete you. Yes. Now, the most common manifestation of this is what has come to be known as the fated mates trope. Um, the soulmate in this, in this instance is the perfect... Um, compliment to the main character, a lover who is destined for them, a romance where ever after everything is settled and all the conflict and uncertainty is removed. Basically, this person will never tire of you, never cheat on you, and never leave you. They will always think you are wonderful. Hooray! Now, while that manifestation of the trope obviously comes with questions, if not outright problematic content, it's also an understandable one, especially when paired with the wish-fulfillment of a romance setting. Yeah. And there are people who do do it in more interesting ways as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're not obviously going into the whole romance paranormal romance thing right now, but yeah, but yeah this, this is important sort of background, I guess. Um, let's look at the origins of the whole idea of soulmates. So yeah. we're not going to complain that what we're about to discuss is the most definite origin of the idea of soulmate. Uh, most cultures stretching way back, probably to before there was written records, contained some 
version of the idea that you know that this is something that is kind of ubiquitous across cultures time zones etc yeah (laughs) um however the ancient egyptian ideas are fairly typically representative of the origins and are an interesting springboard for the discussion so yeah in this branch of mythology many different soulmates or connected souls exist the idea of a perfect mate is actually the least of these and may well not be a mate in the romantic sense but a friend or a soul sibling yeah now in addition there is the concept of the learning soul a person with whom you derive a mentor student relationship which is not always a comfortable or friendly situation and that's an interesting part of it yeah. is that we tend to think of soulmates as in like oh therefore you're gonna be you know chummy uh but uh no <laughs> um, and building on that there is also the idea of an eternal adversary this is not necessarily a wicked person but someone who acts as an enemy or an antagonist to you in your various incarnations so you may very well hate each other the point is that through this relationship where you're at odds all the time you will grow as souls because of this constant exposure yeah um and i feel like this is something that we see a a lot of sort of being explored with this idea of having a nemesis yeah you know that that's what it is to have a nemesis so it is the sherlock moriarty kind of situation where where there is a sherlock there is always a moriarty yeah um Now, what has been simplified um, into a concept of the perfect mate is actually a complicated philosophical theory um, that if reincarnation is real and some souls split or some souls form bonds which last across lifetimes, the purpose is not to provide the perfect husband or wife, but to continually teach, stretch and test the soul. Yeah, which I personally find a more interesting manifestation of the idea than than just a fated mates type trope. Um, yeah, not that there aren't times when I think that trope is done quite well. There are there are obviously other times where I'm like, <laughs> but you know, to each, to each his own on this one. Okay, so what has this got to do with bonded animals in fantasy? Um, now, while many readers may find the idea of a romantic soulmate or fated mate an appealing one, plenty of people find it problematic or uncomfortable. Um, where's the choice? Will every other attempted relationship feel hollow if that fated mate just isn't quite right for you? Um, and why is the emphasis on women having the final word, which from one perspective masquerades as empowerment, but from another is seriously messed up, always yeah. kind of the, you know, de rigueur? Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> enter the animal soul bond. Um, this taps into many of the appealing parts of the perfect mate trope, but neatly avoids a lot of the problems. <laughs> yeah, um, if we're going to be really bold about this, basically by making the soulmate an animal companion of type, um, there is absolutely no chance of a romantic or sexual entanglement, at least not in most conventional it also taps into the learning soulmate trope uh, being bonded to an animal teaches the main character about the animal and about themselves their perspective is broadened the animal likewise benefits many people prefer the idea of their perfect companion being an animal or magical creature and i can kind of see why 
to be honest. Yeah. I mean, in storytelling terms, it is a great and very poignant way of giving a character a great strength, which is also a great weakness, I think. Yeah, I mean, not to, you know, not to pull any punches here, but generally when you've got a dragon rider bonded to a dragon, if the dragon is killed, the rider quite often goes into a decline where they're they become drunken husks of themselves if it's the yeah. other way around the dragon generally dies of grief and that yeah. that's you know a pretty common thing across the board in some cases if the magical animal is killed it will kill the, the, the bonded human as well yeah and vice versa yeah also the idea that yeah you will be incomplete even in the cases where someone doesn't die the idea that they would be incomplete without them that part of themselves i think we see that with the demons in um in his dark materials yeah yeah as bill we'll get into so basically the bonded animal acts as an extension of the human soul yeah um i really like it <laughs> i mean the, the bonded animal also taps into the chosen trope in many instances without actually making the main character a, a special snowflake i think yeah i mean it's different when an animal chooses you to when destiny chooses you for example but you're still very much chosen um, yeah. by something that has real meaning for you and I think the trope gives you the best of both worlds. So the perfect companion who will never leave you, who will never let you be lonely, and will always be on your side, without the ick factor that a romantic soulmate can inspire in some instances. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think there's the, obviously there's the known issue as well, whereas, okay, I'm literally kind of like freestyling this as I say it, but um, basically you've got, if you think a, a perfect mate, the perfect bonded soulmate who is going to be a romantic and sexual partner um mm -hmm. there is an element where it's like maybe you don't want to be that well known to the point where your romantic partner knows every thought in your head and you're basically becoming the same person there's 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 something not great there whereas with a bonded animal you might know each other's thoughts and things but they're because of the species divide <laughs> there will always be perspectives that you can't see. So you still remain individuals, even though your lives are linked. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Okay, so let's look at three types of soul bonds. Um, and I think we'll start with the shapeshifter. Uh, this is where there is distinctly two creatures living within one body and both are always present. Um, so instead of the werewolf that subsumes the human identity, this is an alliance instead. Uh, a symbiotic relationship, if you will. Yes. Honestly, if this is done well, the animal partner has a personality and opinions of its own, even if they're sharing a body, um, and it communicates them to the human side and vice versa. Both parties benefit from the partnership, but there can also be friction as well, which can make for an interesting relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and once again, the main character is never alone, as there's literally someone else with them at all times. Yeah, so some examples. Okay, I'm going to mention the Jane Yellow Rock series by Faith Hunter. Um, mm -hmm. Jane Yellow Rock is um, from, I can't remember the name of the, 
the tribe, but she's from a Native American tribe and she's a skinwalker. Um, the creature that she shares her skin with is, is accidental. There was a big traumatic incident which resulted in her running off into the mountains when she was about 12. And she and this this puma-type creature ended up becoming inextricably linked and sharing the same skin. Um, the, the puma, the cat spirit within her, um, has its own opinions. And its opinions tend to be very much kind of like, this is a threat, kill it. This is a potential <laughs> mate, let's mate and have, have cubs kind of thing. Whereas Jane yeah. Yellow Rock's like, this is not a good time for me, a human, to have children <laughs> kind of thing. Um, yeah. So they're not always on the same side. But, you know, Jane, obviously, as she's already a skinwalker anyway, so she already has this ability to shapeshift and into various different animals, not just to, to wear the puma skin. But mm-hmm. It's just having this, this puma spirit within her as well gives her this extra edge. It's a really interesting relationship, and she's a very interesting character. Um, there are there are bits and pieces that I don't like, like the whole Jane Yellow Rock's obsession with trying to be Christian. When it's like you're clearly not Christian, <laughs> as in <laughs> you're, you're clearly not a Christian. Why are you bothered? I mean, you can you know there are other things in the world, bigger things, and maybe it, it's just not for you. It doesn't. Uh, but anyway, ignoring that, the the whole relationship between cat and and jane is is really interesting um then there's a certain amount of resentment there as well because while um while jane was obviously escaping into the mountains her distress attracted this puma who was a, a mother cat and she left her cubs to see what was going on and ended up being inextricably bonded with this human skinwalker person um so she lost her cubs and there is a certain amount of resentment there from the cat's perspective jane stole her as well yeah so it is both an alliance and it's one born of necessity and affection and there's a certain amount of resentment on both sides Hmm. that's really interesting i've never i've not not read that one so i might actually have to check that out i've only read the first three books there's like 14 books in the series okay (laughs) it's a big series um the other one is the other wolves uh series by heather g harris uh, which i just mentioned um but i love the way that this is done with um the wolves and and the fact that obviously one of the things that differentiates lucy from the other wolves it that she realizes and sorry spoilers early on is that she can talk to her wolf whilst most werewolves can't yeah uh, it's interesting because the wolves are very distinct other creatures who are sharing a body with the humans and the fact that lucy is a piper and can pipe to her wolf and literally talk to it means that they form an alliance which makes them yeah. a lot faster and a lot more in tune with each other um the commentary when lucy is using <laughs> an idiom and the wolf is like why would why would shit be hitting a fan that will make a terrible <laughs> mess kind of thing yeah it's very funny. <laughs> but also again the fact that you get these moments where she's like we should mate with him um and, <laughs> and this being like it's a little bit more complicated than that and as far as the wolf is concerned the wolf is like 
It is not more complicated than that. He is a strong mate, and if we mate with him, then he will not try to overthrow us, kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> wolf politics are a lot more direct. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I really love that series. I yeah. think it's done in a really, really cool way. It is done in a very cool way. Um, and the other thing we should have mentioned, really, is that Lucy is the alpha of her pack as well. Um, yeah. And she's alpha in the sense where the alpha is the person who is looking after everyone. And while there are other alphas in that series who are not like that at all, who don't, and use their position to exploit power over other people, yeah, um, Lucy's very much kind of like... She stress bakes for people, for example. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, she is alpha in the sense of the same way that genuine alpha wolves look after the rest of the pack. Not in the sense of the biggest, most powerful wolf. It's like the, the, the pack parent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I feel like we should probably actually mention Venom. <laughs> oh my god, that's such a weird one, but yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it, it's, I mean, it's actually true. That is, that's a genuine uh, <laughs> symbiotic relationship. <laughs> but sometimes it's a good <laughs> one, sometimes it's a bad one. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, okay. For those who haven't read the comics or seen the films, um, it's kind of an offshoot of the Spider-Man part of the MCU. And uh, Venom is actually an alien to alien intelligence that, that can only bond with certain people and ends up bonding with this reporter who really doesn't have his life together at all. No. He is what you might call a mess. <laughs> yeah, and weirdly being bonded with this like homicidal carnivorous alien intelligence doesn't actually make his life a lot better in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that is a good one because again, they they come to a sort of accord between them rather yeah. than one one personality completely blotting out the other. Yeah, but it isn't initially that easy. They, uh, they struggle to begin with. They do. So, yeah. Um, um, okay. I will mention this. I don't know. I think this might be quite an obscure series for a lot of people. And it's more a collection of... It's three interlinked standalone books, but it's the Silver Wolf series by Alice Borchardt. In case you're not aware, Alice Borchardt was Anne Rice's sister. Mm -hmm. And she took a foray into the werewolf thing before... Anne Rice did herself. Um, I really like this particular series uh, with the Silver Wolf. It's set in the days when Rome has literally just fallen to the sack of the Goths. Mm -hmm. um, so you've still got some of the Roman mores and traditions and things. Um, but meanwhile, Charlemagne is kind of marching across Europe. Um, and uh, the main character Regina is um, she is a poor she's basically the poor relation but of a noble family and mm -hmm. the, what the Pope decides is that it would be important to marry her off to this nobleman kinsman of, of this Charlemagne family mm -hmm. basically um, the problem with this is, is that Regina is a werewolf and generally on full moon nights her abusive uncle and cousin keep her chained up in her room and 
she's kind of like, well, the minute he discovers I'm a werewolf, he's going to burn me alive as a witch kind of thing. Yeah. It's going to be a real issue not loving this plan. Um, so what follows is her desperately trying to find a way to be free and, you know, to to give her wolf, which all it really wants to do is to run and to be free out in the night. It doesn't want to kill people. It is literally a wolf. Mm-hmm. Um, some freedom as well. Uh, big spoiler alert, but it turns out the person she's betrothed to also turns out to be a werewolf, so it's a match made in heaven. Yay! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> much older werewolf, but but anyway, and it's um it's a really really fun series. Uh, it, it's a an enjoyable book. I kind of liked the historical fiction slant to it. A lot of people have kind of criticised it for the characters being unwieldy and doing stuff out of character i don't think that's really the case i think it's just one of those books where it's full of big dramatic feelings and everybody's feeling everything all at once and the there's an almost caricature-esque thing to the bad guys which you know if you're enjoying the story i don't think that's necessarily a, a problem but in in line with this the the wolf isn't named and regina doesn't really have direct conversations with it but there'll be times mm. like for example Regina finds this young escaped slave child at the marketplace um, and she, you know, what she ought to do is turn the girl over to her master because mm-hmm. there's a penalty for helping escape slaves, etc., even at that point. Um, but in her head, the wolf is sort of lowering its nose to a cub so it nudges her towards taking the girl and hiding her yeah, and finding a way to get her back to her family where she was stolen from. Um, and there are other things as well. It's like sometimes the wolf is very much in control. And um, at that point, Regina's incredibly strong and very frightening. I think the problem for her is that she can't con- she can't call it forward when she wants to or she doesn't understand that she can. And she's been so beaten down by her uncle and her cousin that, again, she doesn't understand that she is actually far more powerful than they are physically. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, so it's an interesting, it's an interesting journey in that respect. And the wolf is very much present as a personality in its own right, but it's an animal. So it's not having a direct conversation with her. It's communicating in the way an animal might do. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, let's talk very briefly about the next uh, type, which is the animal twin, which is a little bit different. Um. And technically, this bet this bond may not be an animal at all. <laughs> That's just what they happen to manifest as. Uh, the idea is that the bond is with a creature who is either a split-off piece of the main character's soul or is somehow a representative animal of them. Yeah, sort of totem, almost. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um. And it, it will share animal traits, but it tends to be very anthropomorphic as well. Yeah. Um, the bond itself is unbreakable and may actually cause friction. So, or theoretically, it's unbreakable unless it interfered with and it causes all sorts of problems. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it can be very much like you're arguing with your own better nature or your sense of caution, or sometimes it's not your better nature. <laughs> sometimes it's, it's your, your worst nature. nature. Yeah. Sometimes it's the demon on your shoulder, literally. <laughs> yeah, quite literally. Um, but once again, the main character is never alone and they always have someone who is on their side, ultimately. 
and someone to care for as well. I think sometimes yeah. we underestimate how important it is not just to have to someone who cares for us, but to have someone to care for in return. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. Um, so, a few examples. Uh, which, well, again, we've touched on a couple of them. So, I mean, his dark materials. Yeah, I think it's worth going into that in a bit more detail, really. So, um, obviously, it's Philip Pullman's flagship series. Yeah. Um, and the the point is, in the universe that we start from, Lyra's universe, everyone has a demon. And the demon is, you know, it's unfixed in childhood. It grows up with you when you're a child. And at a certain point in adolescence, it becomes fixed in its form. And it, that shape tells you what sort of person you'll be. And it's very clear when Lyra is asking um, in Northern Lights, she's actually asking what happens if your demon takes a shape that you don't like. And the person she's talking to says, well, in that case, you're going to be one of those people who's discontent with life, aren't you? Because if you can't accept yourself, then you're never really going to be happy with the person you are. Yeah. Um, so that there is an element of that there and I think later in like the books of dust after everything that happens and Lyra's demon has already fixed itself in the shape of an ermine um, they argue a lot and they don't really get on very well and it's a case of it's, it's an interesting question about you know are you the sort of person who maybe doesn't like yourself very much at that stage in your life and can you overcome that um, yeah so yeah it's a pretty heavy topic for what is essentially a children's series was allegedly a children's series but i mean yeah. the, the demons are very interesting and and they follow an awful lot of you know similar tropes in some respects like for example um a battle between demons quite often sorts out a human argument before the argument actually becomes vocalized yeah um you know uh, uh, like animals fronting up to each other in a show of strength well Mrs. Coulter's monkey versus um, Lyra's demon and the monkey managing to pin Lyra's demon and Lyra sort of will back down at that point because she knows she's lost that argument. Um, the same with sort of like the monkey versus Delmaria, which is uh, Lord Asriel's snow leopard demon. There are times when the snow leopard has the upper hand and then other times when the, the two demons are sort of rubbing all over each other because they, those two have still got feelings for each other. Yeah. So in some ways, yes, there's this amazing thing where your demon is part of your own soul. The part of you, if you are female, that is male. The part of you that is male, if you are... Part of you that it, it, it is male, if you are female, kind of thing. Uh, or maybe yeah. maybe you're one of the rare people who, you know, your demon is the same gender as you, and that's, that's quite unusual. Um, but it's a case of you can see yourself as a whole person, and you know this part of yourself, you can talk to it, it has a form, but at the same time, other people can see and theoretically talk to your demon as well, even though it's not really done. Um, and it means that it's much more difficult for you to hide things from other people. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
Another good example, I think, is, again, Heather G. Harris. <laughs> she loves playing with this trope. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is the familiars in the Other Witch series, which, you know, honestly, don't go into too much detail about, but this is Amber's series. Yeah. And there is an, a hint that the familiar you have sort of reflects what sort of witch you are, if you see what I mean. This is by no means the only example of this, this trope. A lot of a lot of um, people who write witchy stories have used this sort of like this is your familiar because this is kind of like the person you are or this is how you do magic etc and it's just very similar to that idea of the demon the sort of animal you attract as your familiar um, says a lot about you kind of thing yeah yeah completely agree um, I particularly like it when people go with the, that sort of the familiars route and they go for something which is a little bit different in that way yeah i think that can be interesting i'm um, like it doesn't always have to be toads and cats and <laughs> yeah i'm not sure about a mouse honestly but i don't know i think it could work <laughs> um Okay, and I think also, to a certain extent, we also get it with the Patronuses and Harry Potter. Particularly since the Patronuses change or can change shape if you fall in love with someone, which is very much at this type of animal trope. Um, yeah. But yeah, and you know, the fact that Harry's is a stag, his father's was a stag, there's a part of him, of his father living on within him. They're very representative of things that we don't necessarily see about ourselves which I think is yeah. really important. Um, so, yeah, I would kind of put this in the same category. I think there are other examples of this trope, but those are the three where it's a bit more very cut and dried that we're looking at an animal twin, a, a totemic representation of some part of yourself that maybe you don't see. Yeah, which I, I, I like, but they I don't think they ever really did. They could have done more with that. <laughs> it could have done more of that. Um, yeah. I mean, the the whole idea of a totem is like, it turns up in lots of different things. Um, like uh, the whole clan of the cave bear, the Earth Children series, having a totem is really important um, mm -hmm. for your life within the clan. And uh, it causes all sorts of problems for the main character, Isla, because she was marked by a cave lion. Well, traditionally, yeah. only males have predator totems because their totems must be able to overcome female totems in order for women to give birth kind of thing um so nothing is stronger than the cave lion <laughs> so it's kind of like she gets marked at five years old and they're like well she's never going to have any children um this is not how it pans out i mean isla is a cromanian child living within the Anderthal tribe so there's already issues there. yeah uh, but but it is interesting and i always like the whole well here's here's your totem this tells something about you yeah i agree and it's a pretty I'm... old idea i mean there's the whole idea of celtic totems as well and not just your birth yeah. totem but an animal that speaks specifically to you yeah i like that a lot as well i think it's definitely something that i would like to use more of yeah going forward because i just love that i just think there's so much potential there now I'm thinking of Brave Star. <laughs> Did you ever see that? It might. It was probably before your time, but it's like eyes of the hawk, ears of the wolf, strength of a bear, speed of a puma. 
Yeah. <laughs> and it's kind of a weird West thing with this like cybertronic horse, which he rides upon, but the horse also stands on its hind leg and is a sentient being. I don't know. What is it with this? Okay, complete sidebar here. What is it with the thing where you have a, a sentient animal who is essentially, for all intents and purposes, is human, and mm-hmm. yet other animals or other humans ride on it? So, like, Wind in the Willows, the whole the whole caravan escapade thing the horse is clearly as sentient and yet it's being hitched up to a cart and made to pull this cart even though it is a speaking thinking animal just like all the others or you know the whole thing where um mickey mouse has a dog called pluto and yet goofy is also a dog but goofy can own property apparently and pluto can't let's not get too much into that <laughs> no, seriously, like, where, where does this <laughs> How, how do people not see the inconsistencies here? Well, I can point out that in the Muppets, the, the vegetables are, are sentient and start singing and stuff like that. They so... are, however, vegetables. They're not actually, like, animals. So All right. it's, a complete, it's a completely <laughs> different kingdom, okay? Yeah, this is true. <laughs> Okay, all right, let's jump to the the last one, uh, which is the choosing animal. Yeah, um, in this particular style of trope, it, this is kind of like the pinnacle of the soul-bonded animal. Yeah. Um, I mean, the animal is usually something rare or even magical, um, and comparatively few people form bonds with them. Yeah. Uh, the animal almost always does the choosing or recognises the soul bond first. Very important part of the trope, that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, there is a danger inherent in the choosing where hopeful humans may be maimed or killed by the rejecting magical creature. Yeah, there's a whole like subsection of, of literature in in this style where, where that's a thing. It's kind of like, well, you can put yourself forward as a hopeful, but chances are you're going to lose a leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, like they literally, <laughs> I mean, this is something that literally happens in Game of Thrones, but it's not, uh, you know, like main character. It's not in the series, it's in the books where the Song of Ice and Fire books, where one of... I think he's the Prince of Dawn, basically tries to get some of the dragons because he's thinking, well, I've got some Targaryen blood in me. And the dragons just... Uh, it's like, apparently not enough. Burn him to a crisp. <laughs> like, you're not my mummy. <laughs> um, yeah, this bond often completely changes the main character's arc or destiny and or increases whatever magical ability the main character has. So again, this is like the plus 10 power of animal bonding. <laughs> mm-hmm. So let's look at some examples. Okay, I know I've mentioned the Dragons of Pern before, but I'm going to do it again. This is a book series by Anne McCaffrey, which are both fantasy and science fiction. The whole premise is that uh, a group of people left Earth because, you know, Earth had problems, and they managed to find Pern which is Parallel mm-hmm. Earth something something. Can't remember how the rest of the acronym goes. And they landed. And once they'd landed, they cannibalised their ships. Um, they also found this really strange breed of little psychic flying lizards that breathed fire. They were just tiny little things. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were kind of like, oh, how cute, the native species, etc. And once they'd cannibalised their ship and settled on this continent, on this this 
basically M-class planet. Mm-hmm. Um, they then realised that there was an orbiting red star that every so often would shed this um, space-defying rhizome over the planet, which would come down. It's called Thread, and it burns through everything, everything um, down to stone. It, it um, would se- sequester itself in vegetation, and then if it touched you, it would eat through you. And it was so awful, it, and it killed so many of them, that they started these experiments with these dragons, which seemed to be at least able to avoid the thread, these tiny little lizards. And they managed to create big dragons. They didn't foresee the fact <laughs> that in creating these big dragons and people to ride them, they would create these telekinetic sorry these telepathic soul bonds and the dragon would find bond to its rider and that would be it for life that's it you're a dragon rider you don't get to be anything else because (laughs) the dragon will not allow it um and anyway fast forward hundreds of years where this group of people have basically gone back to a neo-feudal system and they've forgotten that they ever came from earth and they've lost their own history because they've lost the continent that they arrived on and the Threadfall is due to come again and they don't have enough dragons and there's only one queen dragon left because the dragons kind of form hives and only the huge golden queens ever lay eggs and they desperately need new dragon riders Um, and it's kind of like you see the dragon choosing and you know hopeful young noble children are pushed in there sort of somewhat nervously and as the dragons hatch, they kind of they'll make for the the rider the one that they're gonna bond with. And in order to get to that rider, they will tear apart anyone who's in their way. So if you're just a little bit too slow, you're probably gonna die. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> um, it is a really great series. Unfortunately, Anne McCaffrey, who was writing these back in 1967, it has to be said. Mm-hmm. Um, had to make ha- add a certain amount of softcore porn in order to get them published because if you're a woman, that's what you had to do back then. Um, yeah. So there are some squicky bits in there. Um, one of the okay. squickier bits is the fact that when dragons mate, their riders also are compelled to mate with each other, even if you don't like them. Right. Okay. So it's like when the queen is feeling horny and she finds the dragon that she wants to mate with, you're going to mate with that rider, whether you want to or not. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, not great, but, you know, it was of its time in that respect. Um so yeah, they're really good. They are they are really good books. Apart from that, apart from that bit, that's why I'd rather be a harper than a dragon writer in that series. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, next one is is the Fourth Wing, uh, book by Rebecca Yaros. Yeah, this is. I mean, you could say maybe if the dragon riding aspect was inspired by Dragons of Pern, but I mean, there's so many dragon rider books and they've all been inspired by Dragons of Pern, quite frankly. Yeah. So this isn't like a copy thing. But I talked about it before and it's Violet is being forced to become a dragon rider, which has such a high rate of attrition that even just getting into the college across the high parapet, they lose 20% of the hopeful candidates Yeah. before they've even set foot in the dragon rider school. Um, and then you get to threshing where the dragons look over the recruits and choose who they want. And if you're unsuccessful and you approach the wrong dragon, the dragon's probably just going to burn you alive. Yeah. Which, again, so, good fun. not great. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, 
But Violet manages, obviously, to bond to the great black dragon and a second dragon as well, by accident, which uh, sets her even more apart than she was before. And she was already kind of like, I don't like hitting things, I don't like killing things, and I've got this um, connective tissue disorder, which means I'm a bit weaker than everyone else, so I have to be a lot cleverer. Um, and it's just a, re- a really good, fun thing. But once again, you've got this soul bond. The dragons only talk to their riders, the same way that the dragons of perms only talk to their riders, really. And um, it's a permanent thing. And this is different in the sense of the dragons know that they're going to outlive their riders. And when they do, they hit this grief-stricken state whereby they don't necessarily want to take another rider for a long time, if ever. And if their rider gets killed in an untimely way, sometimes the dragons kind of self-suicide in a rage. You know, they'll attack yeah. whatever, attack the human. Uh, but it's not an automatic death sentence if you die or your dragon dies. It's just a case of it's that incompleteness again. Yeah. If you're a rider, you're probably never going to bond with another dragon. Um, if you're, you die, then your dragon might bond with another rider in another hundred years or so time when they've had time to get over it, maybe. I like the fact that the dragons <laughs> don't automatically die. I feel bad when it's a case of the human did something stupid, so now the dragon's dead. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, what about A Day of Fallen Night by Samantha Shannon? Okay, there are dragon riders in this as well, but it's not just dragon riders. And what I was thinking of is the Priory of the Orange Tree, and they have these very special mounts, which for the... I want to say the Ichneumenon, but I could be saying that completely wrong. But they're kind of like these massive cat bear weasel things, and you bond with them very early on when they're little wee cubs and then they grow up and you know you end up developing a psychic link with them and they talk with you and you ride them and you know they're because the prior of the orange tree is set way out in the desert they're kind of like really great desert crossing creatures and they can go incredibly fast but they're also cuddly so it's like you bed down for the night and you cuddle up with it and it's just it's just so cute Aww. <laughs> um and you know, the whole point of the Priory of the Orange Tree is that they are they are trained to fight um, the, the bad kind of dragons, the worms. Um, and these these creatures help them. So there's all this sort of trick riding and stuff as well. And, you know, they'll tackle some of the smaller worms themselves. And again, they are just really, really cute. They kind of choose you from an early age in the nest. I just thought it was a really nice... Because everyone's like, yeah, when you have the the choosing animal thing, it's almost always a fucking dragon. (laughs) It really is, because of... Probably because of the dragon rides as a pern, actually. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are other examples. I'm sure Mercedes Lackey's done absolutely hundreds of things like this. She's got her psychic horses in the Arrows Arrows of the Queen series, for example. And, you know, there's a... There's a... I don't really like Robin McKinley, but there's the whole sort of Pegasus book as well, you know, where you bond with a Pegasus. Again, it's something flying and magical. Yeah. And people are probably wondering why I'm not not mentioning Robin Hobb and the Assassin's Apprentice series. And the, the reason is I hate that series. <laughs> I really, really hate it. But it is an example. <laughs> I just don't like her writing. I'm sorry. Fair enough, you... Yeah. You're allowed to not enjoy something. 
don't like her writing, don't like that story, hate the main character. It's kind of a, it's a lost cause for me. <laughs> it's just not working for you. So, yeah. Um, the Eastern dragons in A Day of Fallen Night are more like the Chinese and Japanese type dragons. Yeah. And again, they will bond with a human rider and you'll have this telepathic bonds type thing, but it's not kind of... It's not game over. The dragons are very much a case of your intentions are pure and noble. I've decided that I will work with you. But you're the servant. You're very much the servant. The dragons are kind of gods. Yeah. <laughs> At which point is it? Is it really choosing? <laughs> I have chosen you. Yeah. <laughs> like, Thanks. <laughs> We will ride into battle, will we? <laughs> I just wanted to be a monk on the mountain. <laughs> okay, what about... Um, well, actually, I, I kind of feel like I have to mention one which m might not seem as obvious, but pretty much every Pokemon game ever has the whole choosing animal thing. Oh my god, yeah, you're right. Um, I'm a little bit like disconcerted by the whole imprisoning them and keeping them yeah. the Stockholm syndrome thing but yeah but I mean there's lots there's a, there's a whole there's a, there's a whole other element to it yeah but I mean I, I think they see it more as like we go into battle together this is something we do together but yeah let, let's let's put that aside um, but yeah if you actually think about it you get a lot of storylines where also the legendary or stuff will choose or will form a special bond with the character that you're playing um and actually um the, in one of the more recent games the pokemon scarlet or violet there was this whole there is a, a kind of a sub story without giving too many spoilers for the kitakami uh, um, side where there is this rejection of the magical creature uh where you have a side character who really wants to bond with this legendary creature, but it happens to bond with you instead, and this causes some issues. <laughs> yeah. So it's kind of the rejected mate trove. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so I thought I'd put it out there. <laughs> I think there's probably a lot of people at home like, oh my god, you're right. <laughs> no, you, you are not wrong. You're not wrong. I mean, thinking about Ash and Pikachu, and Pikachu's like, yeah. no, 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 I'm not going in the Pokeball, but I do want to be with you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can you think of any other examples? Um, I will mention a book I've read recently, uh, which mm -hmm. is Feybound by Sarah L. Arifi, which... Um, you know, I'll talk about the book maybe a bit more in a bit. But basically, okay. you have these magical horned, massive cat creatures, which are herbivorous, but they do have big fangs, called Abaya. And they, in this universe, you have the elves and the fae, and the elves are very much at war with a rival group of elves. Pre mm -hmm. Previous to that, they have routed the fae, and all the fae are dead. Abaya are kind of like the last fae-type creature, and what the elves tend to do is they'll kill them in order to read their entrails for divination, and they'll take their skins and make magical drums out of them. However, <laughs> as it turns out, as you go further into the book, Abaya actually choose and bond with one human. And at that point, you get the telepathic bond, you get this like fantastic huge cat thing <laughs> that you can ride on etc it makes your magic and stuff stronger and um 
that they are it's just so cute as well um and they're not really supposed to be used in the way that the elves have been using them what a surprise the fae have actually been bonding with these creatures for, for centuries and they're sacred animals and I, i've included that as an example just because it's not a dragon so <laughs> it's like okay it's it's this great magical creature that has been made up and it's different And also, I think okay. they're cute. I mean, I think, I mean, obviously, I think dragons <laughs> are cute too, but I just think they're yes. all really, really cute. Aww. Um, I think there's just, there are so many examples of this, and I think it really does just speak in particular to our absolute love of of animals and our, and our sense of companionship with a lot of animals as well. Yeah, definitely. I think... There, it, it's the thing like why do humans keep pets why do humans love animals there is some part of us that can't ever completely leave the wild behind even though we're thoroughly domesticated as a species and yeah. this idea of something which plays to our love of wilderness and the wild and gives us a little piece of the wild to keep indoors um like a pet um or in this instance you know driving it to extremes like why why let the bounds of your imagination be an, you know, an iguana even, or a dog, or whatever? Why can it not be a magical creature like a unicorn, or a dragon, or something like that? Yeah. It, I think it all plays into that kind of, kind of thing. It, yeah. I mean, you can tell when it's done really well, because you come away from a book or a film, and you think, I really want one of those, I want one of, you know, I want a dragon, I want a unicorn, I want a demon etc yeah do... a lot of people a lot of people just really wanted a demon yeah after... um, in some respects if you think well a demon's actually part of your own soul so what you're asking for is a manifestation of a part of yourself that you're not able to recognize there might even be a sort of egotism in that but it's so completely understandable isn't it it's this it, kind it of is. desire not to be completely alone to be understood yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I think that is it. And I, I think it, it, it kind of taps into this the same thing that we see with people who, you know, they want to be sorted into their into their houses, etc. They want to be, um, you know, know what their demon is. They want to know what their Patronus is. Because I think there is, first of all, this desire to have a better sense of yourself, to see how you are expressed, but also to imagine this creature which you are so bonded with which reflects perhaps the part of you that you can't actually express as well you know yeah yeah definitely um anyway do you have a favorite version of this <laughs> I, that's really difficult it is and more i'm thinking I'm like oh yeah of course i've got a favorite and i'm like yeah okay so what is it yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like we, we, we have touched on a lot of examples of this. Um, and I'm not sure I could say if I have a favourite. Uh, because I think I, it's just a trope that I really, really, really love. Regardless, and it always speaks to me and I always enjoy it. And it's definitely something that I would want to use myself if I haven't already. Yeah, I mean, I while I do love the whole Dragon Rider thing, I'm not sure it's necessarily something I particularly 
I, I don't come away from that with the same feeling that I got when I read his dark materials and was like, I want a demon. Um, or even reading Nevernight and thinking, you know what, I want a shadow cat called Mr. Kindly because that is <laughs> it's essentially the same as the twin animal. Yeah. The animal twin thing, uh, where Mia is actually a an umbramancer of, of, a, of a type. Yeah. Um, so sometimes the shadows pay a bit more attention to her and sometimes they become sentient and they hang around with her. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of funny in that I feel like even in instances where you haven't actually meant to do it, you've actually also included elements of it within your own writing. I've definitely skirted close to it. I yeah, think. I mean, Poe and Grimm. <laughs> yeah, they're not complete. I mean, Grimm starts off as your average moggy. But yeah. then he does something that means that he's not just an average monkey anymore. And Poe Poe was originally born in a nightmare universe and is not just a raven. So um yeah. Yeah. But um, would I go and for And they are ver- but they are both quite reflective <laughs> creatures. I was like, would I go full animal soul bond? Yeah, maybe. Because I think it's got I'm more likely to do that than I am to do the whole soulmate thing. Yeah. I mean if you did, if if you were if there was gonna be an animal that was gonna be representative of your soul, what do you think it would be? Of mine. Yeah. Me personally. Like me yeah. me the yeah, let's say like tomorrow you woke up and there was like a bonded animal. Um, it's probably Just... going to be a wolf. Yeah, <laughs> it'll be a wolf or a cat or something very unsociable. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. I think mine would probably also maybe be a cat or it might be a bird of some kind. Yeah. I mean, in some ways you don't want it to be a wolf because that's going to be really difficult to explain. Yeah, but I feel like you can get away with a wolf to a certain degree. It's like, oh no, it's just a dog. It's just a breed of dog. Yeah. It's a breed of dog from the Swiss mountains. <laughs> yeah, see, anyone who actually knows a wolf would be like, no, that's a fucking wolf. <laughs> yeah, but not that many people actually know what wolves, really know what wolves look like. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a dragon uh, would be even harder to explain, but I feel less yeah. people would argue with you about that one. I, I I also think that, yeah, if you if you have a dragon, most people will just be like, okay. It's going to be a problem when it starts eating flocks of sheep. Yes. Yeah. Dragons are, are definitely going to be harder to keep than if you did have, like, say, a cat or, <laughs> you know, even a bird. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, well, I think we're at the end of our episode. Yeah. Um, but, and as always, guys, our listeners, I mean, tell us what you think. What are some of your favourite examples of this trope? What do you think your soul animal would be? Um, you know, we, we'd love to hear from you. Please do get in touch. Uh, before we go, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. Um, and uh, this week, Jules... I believe you've got one for us. Yeah, I mentioned it earlier, but I'm going to recommend Feybound by Sarah El Arifi, which is a recent release. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no humans in this universe, at least as far as we know. <laughs> um, there used to be humans, but the Fey killed them all off. 
and now the Fae have all died out too, allegedly, killed off by the elves. The elves are busy making war amongst themselves. Um, into this, we sort of come in on the battlefield and with the first, we've got two point of view characters. One is Yirin, who is the commander of this elven army. And the, the other one is her sister, whose name has just gone out of my head, unfortunately. Maybe it will come back in a moment. Um, anyway, Yirin makes a mistake and does something that her lover and the, the chieftain um, mm-hmm. has to punish her for. Um, and this woman who's the chieftain, you immediately get the feeling that she is actually not acting under everyone's best interests. Like she says, she is like a lot of it's propaganda, but Yirin can't see that. Instead of uh, signing her death sentence, as Yirin expects, she exiles her, which is in some ways a lot more cruel. So Yirin yeah. goes off into the wilderness. Um, her sister, who has been yelling and campaigning, has been arrested for making a lot of noise and then finally gets released. Um, realises her sister's been exiled and goes looking for her and with her goes a, a young corporal of the guard who is very loyal to Yirin who wants to help this this girl um, and basically they find out that the Fae aren't as gone as they thought they were um, obviously the Fae hate them because they're elves and yep. they now look like they might be about to execute Yirin for something that she did unknowingly Um and all of them are taken prisoner and it it goes from there and you end up with i don't want to spoilify anything but it's honestly the first 30 percent of this book feels very off the peg and oh i've read it before but then at the 30 percent mark you you keep going and it's like this is different there are both sapphic and straight relationships here that make a lot of sense the fae and the elves both seem to be default sort of pansexual which is kind of refreshing without making a big political statement about it um there is a great sapphic enemies to lovers relationship going on here as well there's a lot about questioning your position and the things you've done in the past and whether supporting um a war without protesting against it makes you complicit and things like that yeah um and it's just really really interesting i'm really looking forward to the second book coming out next year it's a shame i've got to wait that long to be honest but, <laughs> but yeah okay. it's a good book that sounds really interesting yeah i don't want to t- i don't want to touch it now because because <laughs> you said you've got to wait until next year for the next book to come out i'll remind you in december shall i <laughs> Yeah, remind me in December, and then <laughs> we can we can enjoy it together. Okay, um, and on that note, guys, we will say thank you very much for listening, and we will catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note, no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.